it's your boy, and welcome to episode 78 of the podcast, This Is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Everywhere you find good podcasts, you'll find this one. Take a minute, rate and review us, give us five stars, type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why others will also. And if you can think of one person in your life who you think would like the show, send them your favorite episode. Also, video podcast, now available on YouTube. You can find us at thisismpod.com. Go to the latest posting. It should be the first thing you see there. You'll see the video embedded. Uh, And if you like what you see, follow through to the YouTube page and subscribe there. Uh, Happy, 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 happy boy. Your boy dodged jury duty last week. Um... Yeah, I was complaining the other week that I was summoned for jury duty again, and despite it being one of the most formative experiences of my life, um, if you had to select something I certainly didn't want to spend weeks of my life doing in the near future, it'd probably be serving on a jury. Uh, So, and and now with, and I have to believe it's COVID-related, but they're doing this fucking crazy thing where when you um, are summoned for jury duty, it's not just for one day and one time. Uh, It's for the entire week. You're on call. (laughs) for the entire week, which is crazy. And, um, you know, I was saying, you know, uh, all of last week I was on call. So Friday night, I had to call and see if they needed me Monday. They didn't need me Monday. So I had to call Monday night, see if they needed me Tuesday. Didn't need me Tuesday. I had to call Tuesday night, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, they uh, assign you this juror number. And uh, on the website that they have you check every day, you can see which segment of people are being called. And I saw that uh, slice of numbers inching closer and closer to my group. And I thought, you know what? I've dodged a bullet a couple of times this week. And I just, if I had to, have, if I had to have bet money, I would have said that I would have served on Friday, but thank Christ Thursday night, I check it out while I'm working and it says I'm dismissed. So I, I must've done something right in a past life, but someone above is smiling down on me. So, uh, thank you. Uh, so yeah, I feel pretty good about that. Uh, unfortunately it means, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I honestly, I've been kind of stressed out this week. I was thinking of jury duty and, and dodging a bullet, um, in the whole scheme of things or the whole constellation of things that I was sort of juggling last week, it felt like a, a respite. <laughs> I figured the way things were going, uh, that, you know, I, I, I felt cursed and I felt almost certainly that I was going to be summoned for jury duty. In some ways it would have been an interesting experience. Um, being back at the courthouse, um, seeing the process again, it would have been a good refresher for me. And, uh, you know, now that I've dodged it, it's easy for me to say, we, we, we can revisit this conversation the next time I'm summoned if I, if I happen to be selected, but I still think it would have been a cool process. And, uh, I would even say for you, if you happen to get summoned, um, yeah, it's a big pain in the ass, but, but what isn't (laughs) right at the end of the day, everything's a fucking pain in the ass, uh, short of just staying in bed. Right. So anything worth doing is going to be a pain in the ass. Jury duty is one of them. You don't want to do it every year. That's for fucking sure. Um, I was surprised when I was even on a jury that, um, you know, I would say three or four people had already served on one before. But I don't know. I guess it makes sense. If you're if you're if you are literally summoned every year, it makes sense that you would serve multiple times. Um, The first thing I was thinking about this week is that Chris D'Elia is back. Which was a fucking surprise. Um. I got a notification on YouTube. It said new Chris D'Elia podcast episode. And I was like, what? I probably mentioned briefly that he posted. I I don't even want to call it an apology video because 
I don't know. I don't. I can't even remember if he says the words "I'm sorry." But for people who don't know, Crystalia is a comedian. Uh, had a very um, actually, I don't even know if the podcast was that successful in terms of what other people would consider successful. But uh, um, famous and a comedian, uh, podcast host, uh, was accused of I don't even know what you want to call it soliciting minors for sex, sexual misconduct. A lot of these uh, phrases get bandied around, and uh, I honestly don't know what the state of those accusations are. Uh, I think he's always vehemently denied them. Um, but he did come out with a video recently. And I think in, in the comedy world, he's just been a known kind of sex sound. You know, womanizer. That's been a big part of his thing. Uh, no, I don't think that was surprising to anybody. But I think the, the idea that he was soliciting minors on social media for sex or to send him photos or whatever it is was obviously disgusting for many people who were fans of his. And uh, he's been silent for the last year. You know, he, uh, I think he made a public uh, statement shortly after the allegations came out, but um, has completely disappeared from social media since then. His podcast stopped abruptly, whatever. And uh, he came out with this video, I would say, last few weeks, uh, just sort of talking about how he's feeling, the state of things he talked about. He didn't use the word sexual addiction, but he recounted what his priorities have been for the last few years and what his life has been like for the last few years. And it, it, it clearly sounds like sexual addiction, uh, sexual addiction. Um, and there were some other confessions, I guess. He talks about cheating on his current fiance. Um, but then he, I don't know, he sort of jumped back on the social media scene. He's posting a lot of stuff about his son. He had a son in the last year and, um, you know, the podcast started again and, um, I feel really conflicted about it because, you know, I've said many times that Chris Lee is podcast, not his standup. I, I actually don't find him to be a great standup comedian, but his podcast is one of my favorite podcasts of all time. I mean, I've probably listened to every episode three times. And uh, especially when I first found that podcast, I just laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. I mean, it's easy to find things that are entertaining. It's easy to find things that are amusing. But how many things do you find that actually give you belly laughs? You know, like from the depths. And I would just like, uh, as I was doing homework, whatever I was doing, I would just have these things playing on in the background. And it was like I looked forward to it every day. You know, and when I, would, when I saw the end or I was catching up with the current episodes, when I saw that gap closing, I like felt disappointed. I was like, oh shit, man. I'm not going to be able to just like, listen to all these. I'm going to have to wait once a week for the episodes to come out. Um, and so I think like a lot of people, when you find a show or a podcast that you like, if you happen to listen to all of them, you just fucking start over. And so I think I've listened all the way through at definitely at least twice, possibly three times. Um, but when he came back for the podcast, you know, I think he sort of tangentially relates to like what his year life has been like the last year. He says he's been in a lot of pain and I'm, I'm sure he is. Regardless of whether or not he's guilty or not, obviously, this has been a very hard year for him. Now, you are sympathetic to that or you're not. Um, for me, it's probably both. Um, I think he's, he, you know, he certainly is guilty of a lot of, I don't want to sound, well, I don't know. Yeah, it's disgusting behavior. <laughs> he's guilty of a lot of disgusting behavior. I don't know if he's done anything criminal. Um, I just don't know. He may have. Um, but I guess I feel conflicted because it you know, does that make him a bad person? Yeah. <laughs> um, or does it make the things he did bad? I don't know. For some reason, I don't know why, but I'm thinking about the movie Dead Man Walking with Susan Sarandon and Sean Penn. And 
it's a great film if you haven't seen it. And I'm sure like most things, I think these things have disappeared. But I, I, I find typically when a movie comes to mind, it sort of pops up um, on streaming services somewhere. Like I'm finding on Netflix or HBO or Hulu or all these things, we're getting a lot of uh, content that's sort of getting cycled through. There's the the mainstays, like the original content of these channels, like like Netflix, HBO, etc. But there's also a revolving door of historical content, movies, whatever. And uh, it, it, it takes me into a place where I feel like, oh, dude, there's a spirit in my life. <laughs> you know, like I'm chasing the tail of something. But um, it's like as soon as I say something, it sort of pops up. Like I, I was saying, I just finished reading I Am Legend, the Richard Matheson novel, which they turned into a movie with Will Smith. That was not on HBO recently. And then as soon as I finished the novel, like the next day it came out on HBO and it was like, does God, does God want me to watch I Am Legend? <laughs> Um, so anyway, I guess I'm saying that I think Dead Man Walking will probably pop up somewhere pretty soon. It's probably accessible somewhere. Um, but it's an interesting movie because, uh, Susan Sarandon plays a nun. She is a spiritual advisor for, um, a convicted murderer uh, on death row, Sean Penn's character. And, you know, if you really want to watch the movie and not have any spoilers, you can stop listening to this podcast. But, uh, if you want to follow my train of thought, uh, he's guilty and he vehemently denies the murder throughout all the entire film. Um, I don't know if Susan Sarandon never really believes him. And in some ways it's not really about that for her. Um, she's sort of towing this line as in no matter what this person did, um, they're a child of God. They're, you know, they're still a human being. Um, and there's something about that, that I actually believe <laughs> I'm not a spiritual person myself, but there, there's something to that, you know, in some ways you think no matter what a person has done, no matter what they're, what they're guilty of, they're still a human being. And, you know, we're very uh, quick to cancel people and maybe they should be, you know, I'm not saying that we shouldn't cancel people or that people shouldn't be impacted by the choices they make, especially if they're victimizers, right? Especially if they victimize people. But, um, But I guess I guess I'm sitting here saying I heard the latest Chris Leah podcast and I was fucking thrilled. I laughed, 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 laughed like I normally do, and I was like, "Wow, I miss this. I really miss this. I didn't realize I missed it, but I did." And I'm looking forward to new stuff. But I feel guilty because I know there's a army of people, and even myself, honestly, who feels like that's reprehensible. And again, I don't know what Chris Leah has done. Um, and maybe my, maybe my ambivalence or my inability to come down hard on that is obviously my bias is that I've been a fan of his. And so I think sometimes when someone that we like is accused of a crime, we sort of feel guilty. Like I'm connected with somebody on social media who Marilyn, first, first Marilyn Manson, like has been a, a known uh, nut job and victimizer for uh, the last, you know, two decades, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, there's no fucking surprises there. And, um, he was dating, is it Evan Rachel Wood? I'm probably butchering her name, but, um, you know who I'm talking about. She was in the movie 13 and, uh, Westworld and just uh, a bunch of other shit. But Marilyn Manson has been recanceled, um, <laughs> uh, because, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the news story, which has actually been around for a long time of, you know, how he abused her, 
um, sort of popped up again for some reason. And somebody that I'm connected to who's also a creative type has just been like making these multiple posts about how guilty they feel that they were such an avid, in some ways an apologist for Malin Manson for so long that now that these allegations have come to light, they feel so betrayed and they feel so... And I... I don't know, maybe I'm being too judgmental, but I think there's a part of the public seppuku, blood <laughs> bleeding all over the floor, I feel so betrayed. It's sort of a, a way to distance themselves, and maybe rightfully so, from their former endorsement of this person. Um, and again, I don't know what happened with um, Chris D'Elia. I don't know what the truth is, but you know, he even talks about on his recent podcast that so many of his friends just fucking ghosted him without a word. Some people continue to check on him or whatever, but yeah, when you have that stink on you uh, of suspicion or accusation or whatever it is, it's like people just scatter. And, uh, you know, because they'll get, uh, what's the word? If anybody shows any sign of uh, sympathy toward you or, hey, let's wait and see what the evidence is, um, you know, they get taken down also, right? Um So I don't know, even as I'm talking about this, I realize I'm walking a fine line for some people, but um, it makes sense in my mind. And I, I have to believe that if you like this podcast, you're, um, you know, there's things that, that you and I agree upon and there may be areas of thinking that, you know, we're, that's comfortable for the both of us, I would say. So I'm trusting that people who like this podcast are comfortable in this conversation, but it feels weird <laughs> to be talking about, right? Because it's so much easier to just say, like, you know, believe all victims and any accusation is true. Um, and not to dismiss, you know, um, you know, there are many people who come forward and are not believed, right? So th that's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about the objective reality that some people are falsely accused of crimes. Some of those crimes happen to be related to sexual misconduct. It does happen. You know, that, that's just observably true. And, um, again, I don't know what the details of Chris D'Elia's situation are. And if he's guilty, he should be appropriately punished. But it's hard to separate people. It's hard to separate creative people from their creative. It's hard to, it's hard to separate artists from their, and their creative output from who they are as people. You know, it's, it's totally possible to believe that Chris D'Elia could potentially be a predator, <laughs> But also my favorite podcast host. <laughs> um, those things may just happen to be true. And that's weird. And I, quote, shouldn't feel that way. But uh, I, maybe I do. I mean, in some ways, you know, you never know what's true about a person, right? Like Bill Cosby is like the, the ultimate example right now. Is, is because Bill Cosby is one of the most, um, I, I'm trying to think of the word for it, inconspicuous and diabolical predators and Hollywood history um, does that change the fact that the Cosby show was good if it was good I don't even remember if it was actually a good show but um, I, I saw Bill Cosby do stand up when I was 13 or 14 I saw him do stand up for two and a half hours and I loved it now I don't think I had the you know I'm not saying my, my sense of stand up comedy was like highly attuned but it was a phenomenal show. He just sat there in a chair with a microphone, not even up to his lips. He kind of holds it into his lap. And he just spoke. And it was fucking hilarious. And it was great. And, um, yeah, he's a monster. 
but he also may be one of the best stand-up comedians of all time. So yeah, I don't know. I feel weird. Chris Alia, Potential Predator, also host of my favorite podcast that I'm glad is back and I want to hear more of. So I don't know what that says about me. Misogynist? I'll let you decide. Um, it's actually interesting, though. Coincidentally, um, I think a lot of places are trying to find ways, especially like creative houses, like operas, symphonies, are really struggling to find ways to make money, obviously, because nobody's going to the symphony hall, nobody's going to the opera hall. And SF Opera actually just, right now, they're doing this very cool thing where, uh, I think it was like two years ago, maybe a year ago, probably two years ago, um, they did Wagner's Ring Cycle, Der Ring des Nibelungen, by Richard Wagner, which is uh, four operas, one story across four operas. Um, Often you'll see like the first opera, Das Rheingold, or you'll see the second opera, De Valkyrie, You'll see those staged separately. But, you know, I would say every few years at some opera house in the world, someone does a complete ring cycle. And every time it happens, it is a cultural event. It is a global cultural event for people who are interested in that. There are people who just travel around the world to see every ring cycle they can because it's a, you know, for them, Wagner is like uh, the Muhammad of art, right? Or the Jesus of art. And his creative output is the gospel. And, you know, in the same way someone makes a a pilgrimage to Mecca, you know, uh, a a Wagnerite must trek to see the ring cycle wherever it happens to rear its head, Um, even if it's awful, which a lot of the the recent ones have been, at least in terms of the production, right? The the music is usually great, the the singers are usually great, but the production, uh, because people are like trying to outdo each other and make it modern and make it weird, um, a lot of the modern productions are awful. And so, all I'm trying to say is, like, two years ago, uh, SF Opera, San Francisco Opera, did a restaging uh, of a ring cycle that they had done, actually, I think maybe five years before that. Um, and me and my girlfriend went and saw it. We saw the first opera, Dust Rheingold, together. And I had actually seen this same production, like, five or six years before. I'm not sure how many years it was. but um, And it sucked. <laughs> you know, of the ring cycle, the opera I know the best is Dust Rheingold. And... Um, it's probably my favorite, probably because it's the shortest at like two and a half hours. I think the longest one, the last opera, Gooder Damerung, is like five hours long, maybe even six hours long. So if you have that kind of time for opera, <laughs> enjoy it. But um, I, I think I like Das Rangel the best because it's the, the, the most concise of the stories. Um, but um, where am I going with all this? Oh, so SF Opera on their website for the next... Well, starting last weekend, continuing this weekend, and on for the next two weekends, are streaming those operas on their website. Last weekend was Das Rheingold, which I missed, but hey, I saw it live, so who really cares? This weekend is De Valkyrie, which I'm, I'm actually picking my way through. I can't sit through an entire Wagner opera. I have to break it up into chunks. Um, and I also have to engage myself in some other way. I can't just sit there and watch it or sit there and listen to it. I really like, uh, when I listen to any classical music, I like uh, sitting with the score, Either I have, you know, a, a, a copy, like I have a, I, I keep looking over at it like I'm going to reach over and grab it, which I'm not, but I have the full score of Dave Alcure. So I sort of sit there and read the score as I'm listening to it because otherwise it's kind of tedious. But, um, so this weekend's Dave Alcure, then it'll be Siegfried, which is the third opera, and then go to Dame Rung. Um, 
But what is interesting about Wagner, and this is why it relates to everything that we're talking about today, is Wagner is a known, horrible anti-Semite. He's written thousands of pages of anti-Semitic content. And in his first opera, Das Rheingold, the character of Albrecht, who's a Nibelung, like a dwarf, uh, he steals the Rheingold from the Rhine maidens in the Rhine River. He steals their gold, renounces love, forges a ring of power, and uh, becomes very powerful. And the gods end up stealing the ring from him. Um, and it corrupts them. Are you seeing a similar story here? Does it sound familiar? It's Lord of the Rings. Uh, Wagner based his operas on uh, kind of Norse mythology. Um, there's a there's a, a book called The Saga of the Volsungs, which you can find and read. A lot of it's taken from there. Uh, there's a book called The Nibelungenlied, which is parts of it are lifted from there. Um, uh, and Tolkien author of the Lord of the Rings books, uh, based a lot of his story on Wagner's operas, but also on these, the, the source myths themselves. So uh, you'll find a lot of parallels. So Albrecht, who's sort of the Gollum, uh, the, uh, the equivalent of Gollum in Lord of the Rings is his character Albrecht. He's basically a cartoonish, uh, anti-Semitic portrait of a Jewish person. <laughs> and, uh, Wagner has written thousands and thousands of pages of anti-Semitic content. And there are many Wagnerites, right, followers of Wagner, um, who are his apologists, who say that it's not true, that it's overstated. But I think it's pretty irrefutable. I mean, I remember when I was living in Arizona, um, I saw his, uh, Richard Wagner's great-great-grandson, I think it's Gottfried Wagner, gave two talks, which I saw both of them. One was at, like, the Jewish community community center in Tucson, uh, about Wagner's anti-Semitism. He also gave one at the U of A where he talks about the sort of intrinsic, uh, anti-Semitic, uh, iconography in, uh, Wagner's opera Lohengrin. Um, and yeah, it's pretty irrefutable. And interestingly, you know, Adolf Hitler was a known aspiring or failed artist, really. When Hitler was younger, he wanted to be an artist and he failed, but he loved Wagner. I mean, in Wagner's opera, he saw, you know, the image, in, in the hero image in during the, uh, the Ring of the Nibelung, you know, he saw the archetype of his Aryan hero. And uh, the music itself, like the Ride of the Valkyries, which you know, that's from the... I think that's the from the third act of De Valkyrie. That's the overture to the third act of De Valkyrie, the Ride of the Valkyries, one of the most famous pieces of music in history. But that, when you hear that, I know we associate it with Full Metal Jacket, right? When the helicopters are are flying in to bomb the um, uh, civilian village. But um, you know that music and that iconography really informed the Nazi Party. And uh, Hitler was a huge Wagner fan and actually became very ingratiated with the Wagner family. Um, you know, Hitler missed Wagner, but, um, you know, was very ingratiated with the Wagner family. I think, like, built houses for them or something like that. But the Wagner family for many generations was very enmeshed um, with the Third Reich. And so Gottfried Wagner, the great-grandson, he's written all about this in a book called The Twilight of the Wagners, which is something you can read about. Uh, but here's my point. It's indisputable that Richard Wagner is an anti-Semite, a horrible anti-Semite. And there's no doubt that some of his anti-Semitism pervades his work. 
And yet, I also think it's, I can't say it's indisputable because <laughs> these things are subjective, but I think it's almost irrefutable that he also created the greatest operas in the literature or some of the greatest operas in the literature. You know, I, I mean, the, the, you know, Daring this Nibelung and that whole opera cycle is one of these things where, and I have, I have a couple things like this in my life where it's not necessarily enjoyable. <laughs> I think opera is hard anyway. I mean, there have been times where I've like, maybe not listened to opera necessarily, although of course there are moments like maybe a aria from La Boheme or something like that that just sounds pretty. Also, or, or um, I should say, like Nason Norma from Turandot, the Puccini opera, is actually very stirring. When you hear that for the first time, it sticks with you. Um, I know that even that aria has had kind of a renaissance. I think a lot of these voice competition shows, you'll have men who sing that song, and so it's kind of had a resurgence. But, um, you know, when I was younger, just sort of getting, I guess, familiar or exploring the, you know, the classical literature, for lack of a better word, I remember listening to Puccini and I remember, you know, watching a DVD of Turandot and hearing that aria and it was just like the clouds fucking open and I was like, holy shit, that's incredible. Um, you know, a person hearing that opera for the first time without any context would hear that aria and say, that's the best. It just stands out like the opera can't even survive it. You know what I mean? Like Quentin Tarantino, uh, if you've seen the, the, the movie True Romance, uh, there's a very, there's a great scene which is going to upset a lot of people, but... Um, it's the Sicilian speech from True Romance. Um, you have to watch it yourself. But that scene is so good in the director's commentary, or I should say the writer's commentary for that movie, because uh, Tony Scott ended up directing the film, but Quentin Tarantino wrote it. When he when he did the commentary for that movie, he said, this scene is so good, it's, it's amazing that the movie can even survive it. Right? This scene is so, it stands out so much, it's so exceptionally good that it, you know, it, it's... You know, most movies would not be able to survive it. So that's what this aria is to turn on. It's so good that it's like anything after it is just kind of pales in comparison. Um, yeah, I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about anymore, uh, except to say, you know, uh, the Ring of the Nibelung is not like pepperoni pizza pleasure when you listen to it. But there's something about there's something about it that is so psychologically penetrating that when you see it, you know you're in the presence of art. This is one of the greatest hits of this podcast. We keep hitting on this topic. You know, there, you know when you're in the presence of art. Whether it's, you know, enjoyable or not, you know the real deal when you see it. And I think anyone who spends time with the ring cycle, it's, it, it's irrefutable. It's a masterpiece. It's so psychologically dense and deep. It's insane that one person created it. Not only the, I mean, he, he created uh, other things besides, right? The Flying Dutchman, Lohengrin, um, uh, Tristan and Isolde. I mean, the fact that he wrote anything else is insane. But the fact that one person could write these four operas, which are so intertwined and developed thematically across all of them, you know, these leitmotifs that are developed across all of the operas, it's fucking insane. And, um, you know, the archetypes in these operas have informed psychoanalysis, uh, everything. I mean, there's a fact, and I don't know if it's true anymore, but for a long time, after Jesus, Wagner was the most written about person in history. There were more, you know, things written about Wagner than anybody else second to Jesus. 
you know, more people have poured over, the, and specifically the Ring of the Nibelung, have poured over that work and dissected it and analyzed it. And it's the type of thing that people can give their lives to. It's that, comp- it's, it's that complex. It's that deep in meaning. Its themes are so universal. Um, you know, it's truly a timeless piece of work. And it doesn't mean that it's perfect. Like, I'm watching Dave Alkir last night. I'm sitting there with the score and I'm, and I forgot, <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a love, there's an inciting love story at the beginning of Dave Alcure. It's a brother and a sister. It's a brother and a sister who are the son. They're both the son and they're, they're twins, by the way, who are separated at birth, which happens to twins in, uh, in myths. And they find each other and fall in love with the blessing of their father, by the way, and have a, have a son, Siegfried, who will rear his head in the, in the next opera. But that's fucking crazy. So you have like uh, this protracted love story across this opera where these people are singing about you're the love of my life and spring has bloomed when you came into my life. And you're like, that's your twin. You're, you're talking about your twin. Um, to be fair, though, there are other characters in the opera who talk about their relationship as an abomination. But, um, but we're dealing with symbolism. You know, really, at the end of the day, we're talking about nature and we're talking about archetypes. And um, as I'm watching Dave Alcure in the second scene, no, I don't know, maybe the beginning of the second act, I don't know. Uh, there's this uh, scene with uh, Wotan and his daughter Brunhilde, the Valkyrie Brunhilde. And he's just sort of, he's, uh, he's sort of uh, um, expositing, if that's the word. He's recounting what has, the events that have happened between the end of the first opera, Das Rheingold, and where we are today. And, uh... The stuff that he says is so deep. You know, people look at it and it's like, oh, it's myths and it's Rhine maidens and it's dwarves and it's gods and it's all this stuff. But, you know, it's really about uh, the corrupting influence of power. And, um, you know, Votan, the king of the gods, you know, he says, like, I'm bound. Uh, I'm bound by the laws that gave me power that he thinks are, you know, he made many mistakes that he owes his success to. And now he's sort of bound to them. And, um at this point, all he desires is the end of the gods, and uh, just a very powerful story. I don't want to get I don't want to get into it, and some, because I'm sort of digesting it for myself. You know, I've mentioned that I have this sort of I have my own sort of great work that I'm sort of have been uh, scared to do, and I still marinate on. But you know, it's like I'm watching Dave Alkir, and I think this is it, man. There are threads and things in here that, um, you know, are universal. Yeah, uh, there is a you know you're there's this you get hit with the spirit when you're listening to Dar- during this Nibelung or when you're watching it or when you're just sort of you know looking into what it's all about. And Wagner was an anti-Semite. Both are true. Moral virtue does not equate to creative genius or creative greatness. I mean, I had a thought, actually. I was talking with someone, and I said, well, Martin Luther King was a famous adulterer. And I think now in our modern society, like, you could actually easily explain that away. Well, adultery isn't necessarily or intrinsically a moral failure, Maybe he has an open relationship. Maybe he has this. But um, I'm just saying it's some, it means something, right? We're all human. We're all, we're all flawed. Power corrupts. 
right? Martin Luther King was a powerful man. It makes sense that he would leverage that power to bed women. That's what powerful men tend to do. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just saying that's what powerful men tend to do. Mahatma Gandhi. You ever look into him? Holy shit. Towards the end of his life, he would have young girls lay in bed with him. To, he would say to test him morally. Whew. If you didn't know that, Google that shit. I remember when I was younger, it actually, <laughs> I was, uh, I don't know, I, I was reading this biography of Gandhi, and I'm, the, the reason I'm thinking about it is because, one, it actually inspired me to be a better person, but I remember reading that on an airplane and just being like, oh, whoa, what the fuck? That's insane. How come you never hear about this? He would have like naked women, naked young women, like 13-year-old women, like lay in bed with him to test him. To keep him warm and to test him. I don't know. I don't know the specifics, but you got to look into it. That You, that, you can corroborate that. <clears throat> yeah, it's funny. I don't know if I've ever told this story, but around the time I was reading that biography, I remember I was living in Tucson, Arizona, and I was an insomniac in my life. I, I was just like, I would stay up all night. Part of it was I had a, I, I think around that time I was, I was uh, working the overnight shift at a, this 24 hour gym. I worked the front desk and I would clock on at 10 o'clock. I would clock off at seven in the morning. And then a lot of times I would have to bike across town because my license was suspended for two years. I had to bike across town about four miles or so to college and go to class until the afternoon. Then I would go home, sleep for a little bit and then go to work. Um, but I was just kind of a depressed, nocturnal person anyway. And I remember one time I was home. It was probably like 3 or 4 in the morning. And I don't know. I was probably going to the store to get cigarettes or something. But it was just a couple hours before the sun rose. It was probably like 4 in the morning. And I, I was driving out of my place to get some cigarettes. And I just see this person laying in the dirt. You know, in Tucson, it's the desert. You know, when you're in California, maybe there's grass by the sidewalk or there's trees, but in Tucson, uh, it's just dirt. And I see this body laying in the dirt, and I'm concerned for them. I'm thinking, maybe this person's hurt. And so, I don't know if I call to them, I don't know what happens, but they they stir and they kind of get up, and it's a woman, just like laying in the dirt next to the sidewalk. She's very emotional, and I'm sort of asking her what's going on, like, why is she laying out on the street? She says that she's like from the apartments, like right at the street. There was a big apartment complex right at the street from my place. And I don't, I don't know what the story was, but there was some kind of domestic whatever, and she couldn't stay there anymore. Um, and I think like around that time, just to get, if you want to get a sense of the neighborhood this was, there was like a dead body found in the trunk of a taxi that had been driven across the country from New York City, was parked in that parking lot, and they just found a dead body in the trunk of a taxi. But something was wrong with this person, and, uh, you know, they were just sort of put out. And around that time, my mother, who's now a social worker, um, was uh, working at a domestic violence shelter, or maybe had at some time, maybe she wasn't currently, but I just call her and say, hey, I know this sounds strange, but I'm outside my place, and I have a woman here who does not have a place to stay. I'd like to find a place to put her. And, um, you know, my mom really doesn't have anything for her. 
And so I'm just kind of sitting there with this person and I, I don't know what to do. And I basically, you know, I just start talking to them and ask them what their story is. And they tell me that they're originally from Safford, Arizona. And I'm like, where the fuck is Safford? I mean, we all live in states where I'm sure there are cities we've never fucking heard of, right? They're just in the middle of nowhere. And she says, I, um, you know, my, my mom and my dad are in Safford. And I'm like, you're all right. I mean, this woman was probably like, you know, she had a lot of road under her. So, I'm, you know, she could look quite a bit older than she actually was. But I, you know, I remember her as like being like in her late 40s or 50s. You know, and she's like, my mom and my dad are in Safford. And I, oh, and her sister. And I was like, okay, well, um, if you were in Safford, would you have a place to stay? And she said, yeah. And so at that time, I had an atlas, which is fucking crazy. You know, if you're a relatively young person, you're going to be like, what's an atlas? Well, an atlas is, you know, before Google Maps, you would have to look at, you know, this map. And it was like dated. It didn't update itself. You know, you could like look for the highway that you're going to take and you could actually get there and see that it's not there anymore. But the point is, is I look where Safford is on the map and I think it's like two and a half hours away. And I tell her, I say, Hey, if I drive you to Safford, you know, would you know how to get to your house? And she said, yeah. Or to your parents' house rather. And she said, yeah. And so I say, do you want me to drive you to Safford? And she's like, you know, in tears, right? So I do. (laughs) I drive her to Safford, Arizona. And there was a moment after two and a half hours, we're sort of talking or whatever. And I don't even remember everything we talked. I I, I remember parts of the drive out there. But it's insane to me to think that I was in in, in the car with this person for two and a half hours. And I had, you know, I don't remember what we talked about. But I remember when we get into Safford... And she starts looking around and she's like, okay, make a left here. Remember, folks, there's no Google Maps. I'm, I'm trusting her that she, once we get to Savage, she'll know how to navigate to her home. And when she starts going, oh, I think it's that way. Oh, no, wait, I think it's left. Or I th- After about 25 minutes of driving around, not being able to find her place, I thought, you fucking idiot. You fucking idiot. This person has no fucking idea where they are. This this whole story could be complete fucking bullshit. Um, and also, who knows where she's taking you? She could be taking you to her drug-addled friend's house, and they're going to fucking rob you and take your truck. But we're driving down the street, and she says, okay, oh, oh it's a right here. And so I, I turn right into this driveway, and I go down. And uh, this old woman just, like, comes out of the house wondering who the fuck is in her driveway. And the minute she sees her daughter... In, in the truck sort of coming out of it, she just like bursts into tears. You know, and there's this very poignant moment where this, you know, mother and daughter are sort of reconnected and the mother's like calling into the house, you know, to her husband, presumably, that their daughter is here. And so we get led inside and uh, this fucking house that has not been touched by time for the last like 30 years. On the last episode, we were talking about the death of my uh, my girlfriend's, you know, I don't know what you call him necessarily like grandfather's brother or, or, or grandfather twice removed or whatever the fuck it is. But, um, you know, he lived in this house that had not been touched since like the sixties or seventies. And that's the, exactly the type of house this was wood paneled walls, shaggy carpeting, um, a lot of amber glass, if that makes sense is everything's just kind of, uh, amberish. And, uh, we're sort of sitting there and they sit me down and, and I don't even remember what we talk about basically, but you know, they just say that they haven't, spoken to their daughter in like years and uh yeah 
It was, it was just kind of surreal. And I was just kind of sitting there like, yep, yeah, well, here we are. And then at one point she says, would you take me over to my sister's house? And I was like, um, sure. And that's going to be it for me. Right. I was like, yeah, I'll take you over there. And then I got to go back home and, uh, drove her out to her sister's house, which was a trailer in the middle of the desert. And, uh, it was just, uh, it was just a humbling experience, you know, cause I was in the middle of nowhere. See, and I, it was like, I didn't even realize that people lived this way. I mean, it was Arizona. I should have guessed. Right. But I had never seen this part of Arizona. I hadn't encountered too many people who lived this way. I mean, it was, you know, true, true poverty. And uh, we're in her sister's trailer. And I remember just sitting there and I think they were drinking beer. They offered me a beer. I may have had one. I don't even remember. Um, And by the way, I'm like 17 or 18 at the time. And I just remember this young kid playing video games and just kind of looking around and just seeing how small the trailer was. And I don't know, it was just uh, consciousness raising, you know, to just think like, you know, you, you think you know how people live and then you see it and it's just, you know, it's sad. I don't want to sound judgmental or classist or whatever, but it was just, uh, it, was, it was a hard life. I think anyone who saw it would have agreed. But, um, you know, after a while I was sitting there and I just said, okay, well, I'm going to go. And I said goodbye. I have no idea what happened to that person. I don't know what the fuck. I mean, we never stayed in touch. I don't even remember their name, really. And why did I tell that story? Oh, I was reading about Gandhi at the time. It just seemed like the right thing to do. I mean, I've talked about this. I have other stories and maybe they'll come up. I, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to seem like I'm sort of, uh, trying to, uh, I don't know, brag. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right word, but, um, I have a few stories like that. And, um, you know, I've always just kind of wanted to be a good person. Um, and I think reading about Gandhi was a part of that. Um, and I remember the next day, I think I had to hurry back too, because I think, I think that day I had to fly with my family, my dad, my brother, my sister, and my stepmother. We had to fly out to like Illinois for my half brother's wedding. Insane. But I remember on that flight reading Gandhi's biography. Or continuing to read it, rather. But yeah, I think about that story. I think the other one that stands out, and I guess this will just be all the fucking good things I've done in my life uh, podcast episode, but I remember one time I worked at Fuddruckers. <laughs> Y'all ever been to Fuddruckers? Fuddruckers is a funny place, man. I used to like to eat there before I even worked there. Um, but I was always a hot dog guy. When I was growing up, I was not a hamburger guy. Now I love hamburgers, but when I was growing up, I did not. I, I still have never had a fast food hamburger. I've never had a, I've never had a hamburger from McDonald's. I've never had a hamburger from Wendy's. I've had a metric ton of chicken nuggets from all these places, but I, I don't think I've ever had a fast food burger. But anyway, the, so the hot dog at Fuddruckers is great if you ever go. But, uh, I had a friend who was working there who got me a job after I, I, I had just finished working at Sam Goody at the mall. And now I need another gig because I quit that and uh, worked at Fuddruckers. I don't know, maybe for like a year or something. I don't know. I, I, I ended up walking out of this job. But I remember one time I was working late. We were coming out and, um, you know, it was right by sort of a busy intersection or sorry, a busy uh, thoroughfare in, in Arizona. It's called Speedway. It's just a fucking big, big road. And uh, people used to like drag their cars and like all sorts of shit on that road. Um, but there's just this young girl just like sitting on a bench. I'm like 
15, 16 at the time. Youngish girl just sitting on a bench as we're closing up. It's like 1030. And uh, everybody else who's leaving or getting off work just sort of walking out of their car. And I just asked her, like, what are you doing out here? And she was just like, I'm just kind of stranded out here. And we, I guess we strike up a conversation. I don't remember everything that happens, but she tells me, like, she's on drugs. She's supposed to meet, like, I think her boyfriend at a motel, like, 10, 15 minutes up the road, kind of near the U of A campus. And I was like, well, I'll give you a ride. And I think she was kind of suspicious of me at first. <clears throat> Although you have to picture me when I was 15 or 16, I had this crazy haircut. I probably was wearing like 10 necklaces and I, I just, I wasn't an imposing presence, but obviously, you know, you got to be weary of any guy who's trying to give you a ride when you're clearly in a vulnerable, uh, vulnerable position. Um, but she's like, okay, I ended up giving her a ride to this motel. And I think she's like using my phone at the time to like try to connect with this guy. And I just sort of asked her at some point, I was like, Hey, would it be, you know, what would, what would it be like if I just took, like, I asked her like, well, how long has it been since you've seen your parents or whatever? She's like, like two years or something like that. And I said, what would it be like if we just like, if I took you back to your parents' house, like, would that be, you know, could that help you change your life? I don't know if I mentioned that this person was drug addicted, but this person's been strung out on drugs for a long time. And uh, I think we go back and forth, but she just kind of says yes. And they actually lived in like a kind of affluent area of town, but she ended up giving us directions out there. And I remember I walk her up to the door and it's like probably like 1230 at night or something like that. And her stepfather answers the door and he's flabbergasted to see her and, um, you know, lets her in the house. And at first he like is very standoffish with me. And eventually he told me he thought I was like one of her punk friends who was also like using drugs. Like maybe I wanted to fucking crash there or something. And I just sort of explained to them like, yeah, uh, I just sort of saw her when I was getting off work and we talked and I was going to take her here. But then I thought maybe she should come here and she agreed to it. So yada, yada, yada. Um, so what am I saying? I'm a fucking saint. This is Saint M up in this motherfucker. <sighs> what am I talking about? Um, I don't know. I got a heart of gold. You should all want to be like me when you grow up. I guess I just wonder what happened to these people. If I, if I had to bet, I would say probably not great. I do wonder if they remember me, though. I mean, it's funny what people remember. I don't know if we got into this on one of the other episodes, but I did mention that I had reconnected with a friend of mine who I had known from Performing Arts Summer Camp, which I attended for a few years of my life when I was younger. One of my best friends from one of my summers there, um, we reconnected. She found me on Facebook, sent me a message, and uh, we agreed to meet over Zoom or FaceTime. I think it was FaceTime. But, you know, I hadn't seen this person in 20 years. Maybe longer, maybe like 22 years. And uh, it's just so funny when you talk to people and you say, like they remember things about you that you just never remembered, right? And I actually feel guilty a lot of times because I, I don't remember things. You know, like my brother ended up living in Arizona for maybe another six or seven years, maybe eight years after I left. And so many times he just like mentions names to me and I have no idea who he's talking about. You know, there are like the people I went to elementary school with, the people I went to middle school with. Um, I 
you know, there's a couple people who come to mind who I remember, but for the most part, I don't remember anybody. You know, I did not stay connected with people. And I guess I was sitting across from this person who I connected with and she was asking me, oh, do you remember this person? Me and her are like best, we've like been stayed like best friends over the years. Do you remember this person? And I'm like, no. And I even misremembered this person who was like my best friend for the summer. You know, I remembered her as like a creative writing person or something. And she was like, we acted together. Like we did plays together. And I was like, oh, okay. It just makes me feel phenomenally self-centered. And I am. <laughs> I, I don't dispute that. I'm, I'm incredibly self-centered or self-absorbed. Maybe that's the way to think about it. I'm just absorbed in myself. That's, I can't deny it. Um, maybe I smoked way too much weed in middle school, but I, I don't have the recall that other people do. Or, I, I don't know. I just don't remember people. I don't remember people from elementary school. I don't remember people from high school or middle school. I feel like I've lived a thousand lives and there's always this like cast of characters, but I just don't hold on to people. You know, they just kind of disappear. Wow, poignant. (laughs) Poignant stuff. Oh... It's actually kind of crazy that people remember me, too. You know, like I've said, you don't get to pick what people remember about you. And I just wonder what memories people have of me. I mean, you know, when I was sitting across from my friend, it was like, well, what do you remember? And uh, she said something like, I remember you wearing tights and you were like playing a tree or something. I have no idea what she's talking about. Um, And maybe there were some other things, but it's just... uh, I remember saying goodbye to her. Maybe this is where I'm getting with this. I don't remember spending time with this person, really. I mean, I remember how they made me feel. I remember saying goodbye to them. I remember that it was a very important friendship to me. But I have no memories of our day-to-day experience. And I kind of feel that way about middle school. Like, when I went through middle school, there was like... I've always been closer with girls than I am with other guys. I think it's because I'm so artsy. But uh, I had like two or three girlfriends, literally girls who were my friends who I went through middle school with. And it was like we were friends and we spent our free time at school all the time. But I like never saw these people outside of school. You know, I don't have very many social memories with them. I mean, I don't feel that bad about it, but it is crazy when I look back on my life and I think, what a fucking loner I've actually been. Even though I think I've been popular, I mean, I think I've been more popular than I have felt throughout my life. I think I've gone through my life feeling bad about myself, thinking that people didn't like me, um, just feeling deficient in some way, you know? It was insane to me. I mean, I I, I sort of was probably talking about like the times where, I, I mean, I had way more romantic or sexual opportunities in my life than I ever even fucking imagined. 
that were all around me. I just didn't see them. It's like Jennifer Connelly in the labyrinth. She's just running and running and thinking, there's no turns. Well, you have to stop and look for them, you know? I just had this tunnel vision of like, it just, the thought never occurred to me that people would be attracted to me. <clears throat> and uh, I think I was that way with friends. You know, I just, uh, I don't know. My self-esteem has just been like, I don't know, so diminished, sorry, so so diminished in some ways. And I think it's just impacted my relationships. You know, I think I've, You know, I do remember before I dated my girlfriend, <laughs> I do remember uh, when I was dating, I uh, I remember I, I saw someone for a little bit who uh, was not a good match for me, I'll tell you that in hindsight. But I remember one time, we'd probably hung out like half a dozen times or whatever, and she said, I feel like I have to tell you a lot of the same stories twice. And I was like, well, like, like what? And she's like, well, she's talking about her family or who this person is or that person. And... um I think that's probably telling and that I probably just wasn't that engaged or, or whatever. But, um, but I also think that that's true. I think, um, what, what I thought in that moment was like, Oh, now now hear me out. (laughs) But what I thought in that moment was, Oh, because I'm not really listening. And I don't mean like, eh, nonchalant. I don't care. I'm not listening. I mean, I'm, I spend all of my time wrapped up in something else, which is, I am hyper-conscious of how you're experiencing me. You know, and I don't mean like in a squirrely way, but it's just like I'm hyper-attuned to like other people and how they feel and how they might feel in relationship to me and how what I'm doing might impact them. That there are things that other people probably just attune to naturally that I just, I'm not really dialed into. They just kind of wash over me. You know, it's like a, a lar- it's sort of a, a macro version of that phenomenon. Like everybody says they're bad with names. And it's like, no, you're, well, maybe we are bad with names. But the reason we're bad with names is not because that's just some skill that we're missing. It's because when you meet someone, you're not listening to their name. You're, you're too busy drinking them in. You're, you're, you're uh, sizing them up. If it's a male, you're looking at them. Are, are they a threat? Is this someone I'm sexually attracted to? Is this a potential mate? Uh, do I like the way this person is dressed? You know, you're, you're just assessing the other person. And because of that, your faculties are absorbed in something else. So that happens to be the window in which somebody gives you their name, but you're not really listening to it. You're not ready to receive it. So you don't retain it. That is kind of like what my life is. (laughs) I have this water wicking aspect of my brain and my memory and my recall because my hands are full with something else. And it makes me self-absorbed. That, I think that's what I mean when I said I'm self-absorbed a while ago. I think that's what I'm, self, I'm absorbed with. Myself. My experience. And also how other people are experiencing me. You know, I was talking to my girlfriend recently, and I'm sure it's come up here on the podcast. And I feel like I've, I've said it a thousand times, but it, it's something that we have to come back to, which is like spending time with other people is draining for me. You know, when I'm around other people, I am on. Like, I feel on. I'm never fully comfortable unless I'm alone. <laughs> unless I'm by myself, I do not, I'm not unplugged. I'm on. There is a, uh, 
you know, there's just something being drained from me. I'm just not, there's a certain level of, uh, if I'm around someone, I'm clocking them, you know, and it doesn't mean I'm, I'm overtly uncomfortable. It doesn't mean I, um, don't like the person. It doesn't mean I'm not even enjoying myself. It just, there's part of my bandwidth is, is absorbed in this vigilance of like looking at other people, assessing how they're feeling, being attuned to how their emotional state and, and also how I'm impacting them. You know, I've talked about growing up and I think it has to do with this Gandhi thing too, or, or wanting to be a good person or trying to do the right thing. Um, you know, I, I, it's so easy for me to look at other people and I just sort of kind of assess on subconsciously, like what I think they want from me. And I just sort of give them that, you know, that's how I, you know, define myself or that's how I, um, present myself to people. What does this person want or need me to be? That will be the benchmark of success. And so I will work to give them what they want from me. So sad, man. Shit. This is like therapy. (laughs) Are y'all in therapy? If you're not, you should be. My girlfriend's sort of double dipping right now. She's seeing two therapists. She was seeing someone, it was too expensive, so she started looking for someone else, but she's still, <laughs> she's sort of in between uh, therapeutic relationships right now. I've never had this personally, or at least, at least if I had, I'm not aware of it, but you do hear about like when people are breaking up, they like meet someone else, and so they kind of have that weird dance where they're like kind of seeing two people at the same time, and technically they're cheating, but it's the kind of thing in hindsight where you sort of forgive yourself and you hopefully forgive the other person because people are human. That's what people do, especially when they're young, people hurt each other. (laughs) That's just what we do. (sighs) So fucked up. Like, I think every dude listening to this podcast, like has one girlfriend that they were not nice to (laughs) maybe more. They have a, some people have a fucking trail trail of fucking bodies behind them. But, uh, I think you have at least one person that you were just, you know, you, you weren't a mean person. You just weren't emotionally mature enough to like handle certain things well you were just kind of emotionally immature in that relationship and you look back and you think fuck like i just wonder if you spoke to most young girls their first relationship they'd be like yeah that dude was a dick or you know he just kind of treated me like shit but really it was just like two young people who i don't know i just find i know it's a cliche but i think uh, women tend to be more emotionally evolved than men especially when they're young when they're teenagers girls are like light years ahead of the boys And, um, I just have to believe like in those first relationships, like girls are just like, what the fuck? Like, why am I dating a fucking, you know, guys are just fucking losers emotionally, right? They may have other things going for them. Maybe a great athlete, maybe a nice guy, maybe a smart guy, but we're so emotionally stunted. It's crazy. And for many of us, it lasts our entire life. That's just one of the cultures. You know, we talk a lot about, and we should, but we talk a lot about the way that women are sort of objectified and, you know, the way the cultural expectations sort of um, hamper them. But I would say the same thing about masculinity. You know, we talk about toxic masculinity, but it's it's toxic for men too. I mean, the perfect fucking example of this is, um, you know, my sort of burgeoning interest in firearms. I've been shooting 100 rounds a week. How about your boy? <clears throat> Dude, I'm, a, I'm an okay shot, I would say. For a new shooter, I do I do pretty well. And uh, I've decided to work through this NRA marksmanship, I think they call it the marksmanship qualification program. 
anyway, depending on your gun, it could be a long, long gun or a rifle or a pistol or whatever, but they have these courses of fire that you work through. And if you achieve these things, you get like a new level, right? Interestingly, the first level is pro marksman. And then the second level is marksman. I don't know why pro precedes marksman in the first instance when that is the uh, more beginner level, but I don't fucking know. But there's like pro marksman, marksman, sharpshooter, um, maybe like master expert and then like distinguished expert. But I, I like other things where I set a curriculum for myself that I start to work through. I was like, I'm going to do that. So I, I've looked at the requirements. I think I have the skills to actually work through the first two, like right now I could probably complete, but we'll see. Um, but the point is, it's like when I go to the firing range now, I see so many, and this is actually my experience with gun culture at large. It's this like performative machismo masculinity that is just a bunch of bullshit. Like the people who are the most into firearms, especially this sort of like tactical, like self-defense, like everyday carry, concealed carry people just seem like the most, seem like the weakest people that I've ever encountered. Like they seem like, like, you know, you'll meet like attractive women who are just, they, they seem kind of tainted and poisoned because they've been so sexualized in their life that they've never had a chance to develop a full personality or version into the full human being that they should have been. And it's not their fault. That's just what society does to you. I feel the same way about a lot of dudes. It's like they're, they're so, they feel so much pressure to be a fucking GI Joe that they don't actually become a human being. <laughs> they don't become a human being. And, uh, it just all gets funneled into firearms. You know, like they, in their mind, in the myth of themselves, they are the hero of their own action movie. And so they spend all their time into firearms and developing an arsenal and prepping for this like hypothetical firefight, like the way they talk about their gun, you know, they call it their force multiplier and they talk about like what would happen in a gunfight or this or that. And it's like, you know, they spend a lot of time dissecting like what cartridge they should have in their gun or what, what's a good self-defense round, et cetera. And you just think you and like, ironically, you're talking about how well prepared you are for a, for a, for an engagement of this kind. And you don't strike me as very well prepared because they don't have the emotional, they don't have the emotional thing down. Um, yes. Where am I going with this? I don't know. These guys just seem poisoned by our, um, whatever our, uh, cultural expectations are for men. I see many men who are equally poisoned by it. Um, you know, not victimized in the same way that women are, but, um, but it's still something. All right. Well, I don't know what to tell you. We've danced around a couple weird topics today, and uh, so I don't know how a lot of these are going to fly with some folks. But um, hey, but you're a fan of the podcast, right? You're comfortable with this stuff. And uh, you know what? You're forgiving, too. You understand I'm talking through these things. I'm trying to figure these things out for myself. And uh, my ideas aren't fully formed, you know? I'm just trying to figure it out like you. And uh, hopefully we'll figure it out together. So if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, you can on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And do this. Take a minute. Rate and review us. Give us five stars. I think we need them. <laughs> Give us five stars uh, and type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast. And uh, if you can think of one person in your life who would, who would like the show, send them your favorite episode. And check out the video podcast. This will be episode four, I believe, which you can find on our website, thisismpod.com. You'll see the latest episode link there with the video embedded. Give it a watch. Click through to the YouTube page. Subscribe. And, uh, man... It's insane where we go. I didn't know where we were going to... Where we were going to... So there you go. (laughs) Thank you for listening. Thank you for your time. And ciao. 
for now. <laughs>